Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as always, Revenue Cat CEO, Jacob Biden. Our guest today is Lisa Canelli, Chief Marketing Officer at Fishbrain, the number one app for people who love fishing. At Fishbrain, Lisa manages a team of 20 people and is responsible for everything from brand positioning and product marketing to business development and e-commerce. Lisa also mentors startup founders on marketing and strategy. On the podcast, we talk with Lisa about marketing an app with no revenue, the challenges of adding new revenue streams, and the importance of brand marketing in a post-IDFA world. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so great, great to have you. I've been wanting to chat with you. So before we dive into Fishbrain, um, where you're at now, uh, I did want to talk about Clue, the startup you were at uh, before Fishbrain. Um, you, you joined in 2013 and spent four years uh, with a funded startup that was just growth, 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 You know, primarily focused on growth. Um, and then uh, as you've shared before, you know, then toward the end of 2018, you had to figure out monetization and and decided to introduce a subscription. So I'd love to, yeah, just hear about that experience. It's such a, a, a unique perspective going from that that growth, growth, growth to then introducing us and positioning, you know, from your perspective, from marketing, positioning this subscription product. Yeah, absolutely. So Clue is a female health startup, um, and which is basically, in other words, a way of saying it's an app to know when your period is coming. Um, and the product did a lot of things over time, but that's basically what the core user proposition was, right? And um, when I joined at Clue in 2013, and even still now, that was an incredibly crowded space in the app store. So even then, I remember there were 200 period trapping apps wow. in the app store. So it was really just like a land grab at the time and just like take market share. And that was fine. That was clear from our investors, from the company. And I remember people would ask me at the time, so like, how do you make money? be like, well, we'll figure that out later. We'll figure that out later. Um, and, th and that was okay. Cause it was like, you just, you did need to claim that market share and really, uh, you know, set yourself apart. And, and actually brand was a big part of that, which maybe we can talk about later. Um, so it was like, definitely grow, grow, grow. And then eventually it was like, okay, we need to really start thinking about what is the revenue model here. And we'd been thinking about it. It wasn't that we weren't, but we did have a bunch of different options, but it was more like, we have to get enough of the market and then we'll be able to monetize. So then when um, we looked at a couple different other models, but one of them was subscription and we tested out a few things, kind of like also the um, Wikipedia donation model to see if that was something people were receptive to. Um, and then we ended up, you know, one of the initial ones, I think, was we tested maybe something that was like a dollar a month um, and then, you know, a more monthly, quarterly, annual. So different kinds of models. We also played a lot, uh, which was interesting, was with the naming of it. So thinking of it as like a membership versus like a subscription, because there's this whole thing around like female health and sort of supporting community and using your data for good. And, you know, it's something you want to pay for because you're helping the community, you're helping this data get better. So it, it was definitely an interesting challenge to really shift that way of thinking from like growth into into more revenue. Yeah, that's a um, if you're if you're outside of the venture backed world, it seems very strange, right? Like if you don't have capital to burn. But if you think if it, so, assuming you do have capital to burn, you have cash that you don't that isn't doing anything else, converting that into a num a, a, a number of users, it's another valuable asset, right? And then of course later you monetize, right? Which is a little bit different 
definitely a different playbook from like the uh, bootstrap. <laughs> That's really not yeah. an, an, a strategy available if you're bootstrapping. Exactly. And, and I think we were also, it helped, we were able to grow really fast for quite a while. Like we were really able to tap into some sort of, we took advantage, for example, of being, you know, on Facebook, um, through Facebook ads, like very early, incredibly cheap, incredibly easy. We just basically market to like women of a certain age and the downloads like poured in. Um, and like we were very early with influencer marketing, right? But that was pretty early on. And it was like, if you could get a bunch of female influencers to talk about using a period tracking app, they would just go download it. So the focus on growth made sense because it was pretty easy. And then it was like, okay, now hmm, in retrospect, like it would have, I think it would have been smarter to, or I wish we had thought about monetizing earlier or maybe to run some tests earlier, right? So it's sort of yeah. like getting that audience a little bit more ready to do that. And so they didn't actually launch the subscription until after you had left, but you were talking about like the dollar a month and other stuff. So I assume you were a part of kind of the, the testing. How did, was it surveys? Did y'all actually introduce a subscription, but but have it kind of uh, uh, A-B tested? Or, or how did you figure out the pricing before you actually launched the subscription product? Yeah, I think it was a bit of some surveys. It was a bit of surveys. It was a bit of sort of looking at some of those other models. Like we said, you know, sort of it's the Wikipedia model of sort of like you want to donate because you believe in supporting this cause. And that seemed like it was very aligned to our values. So those were some, I mean, you know, and then it was a little bit of trial and error. So, and I say we didn't launch it like fully until after I'd left, but we were running some tests before then. And thinking a lot gotcha. of brand, because brand and branding was so big, so core to that product in that space. It's uh, it's interesting to think about paid acquisition without the like necessary CAC calculation or like the CAC LTV <laughs> ratio, right? I mean, um, did you use like um, did you use like CAC to engagement ratios or something like this to make sure you weren't just buying like totally junk leads? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and sort of looking at sort of what was the. Yeah, the average sort of like customer acquisition costs from these different channels and sort of looking at how that translated into monthly active users, you know, absolutely. Right. Um, because that's the interesting thing, especially with the peer tracking app, a monthly active use case is actually a pretty good one in that context. Yeah. Of course, you'd like it to be more, <laughs> right. but like it actually, when you're looking, sometimes you look at like monthly active users is sort of not such a good, you know, thing to look at for your business. In that case, like it kind of was, but of that's course right, then yeah. you want it to be more often, you know, you want people to be more, you know, engaged all the time. What were the specific KPIs? Was was monthly active users kind of the, the North Star? Oh gosh, no, it's been four years. <laughs> I mean, for sure, but the, you know, we did want it to actually be a daily active use case. We wanted it to be something where you wake up every day and you just like log how you're feeling no matter what. So more of a really a health tracker, like moving from being a period tracker to a health tracker. That was where yeah. we were trying to go. That's always interesting when you have a product that um, sort of by its nature encourages a limited amount of use. Right. I think dating apps is a good, like all, a different, totally different angle, but same thing where like the, the goal of the product is to not need the product. In this case, mm. it's like the, the core use of the product kind of like limits it to a certain amount. And it, we, I, I've, I've worked on products in the past too, where sometimes you feel, it does feel a bit unnatural, even maybe like weird to try and push that usage a bit more, like then feels, then feels right. Like, oh, why do I need it? This Mao to be a Dow, right? Like, does it need to be every day? But the upside is like the bottom line is the business benefits the more a user uses it, right? Which is, um, which I, it maybe isn't always like the nice thing about subscriptions and recurring, like it certainly in like a world where users are exchanging and buying daily, like Amazon habitual buying experiences, games, things like this, DAO is like so important, but for subscriptions, 
it might be good enough, right? Like if you, as long as somebody's engaged in their data and they're coming back on a monthly basis, I mean, I don't know. It's just another, uh, another point of why I like subscriptions over most monetization models. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, take sure. some of that pressure off, right? Yeah. I mean, I actually, just as another example, I um, have a good relationship with the CMO of Untapped, which is the beer social network, mm -hmm. right? I like to speak to other social networks in different verticals. And we had the similar conversation is that they have a weekly use case and they, if you're having much more frequent of a use case with untapped, which is a beer drinking app, then maybe you have a problem. So like social drinking is a weekly thing and that's okay. Um, yeah. They're not a subscription model either, but like it's it's an interesting point to, to think about. It's something we should talk more about in, in, you know, when we're designing metrics and North stars and things for our apps is like really thinking through like, what is it that we're encouraging here? And then like, and not just think about ourselves as like, to turn this into an ethics and technology podcast, but like <laughs> not just think about it very narrowly in terms of like, how do we drive our KPIs as a business, but what does this actually translate into for our end users? And that's a great example. I didn't think, think about that. Right. And put some guardrails on it. But anyway, what, one more divergent on, on this is I think I may have shared this on the podcast before, but I, I love Visco as an app. And, and to me, what's so cool about Visco is that it encourages me to use the app when there's a photo I care about. So I don't take a photo I care about every day, but when I take a photo I care about, I automatically drop it into Visco and make it better. And, and so it's like this value-based use case that's like, doesn't have a set frequency. Like it may be twice a month. If I'm on vacation, it may be like a hundred photos in a month. But like the value is so clear, I think they should be charging more than 20 bucks a year. And I've never thought about canceling the subscription, even though I may go some entire months without using the app. So like, you know, that whole monthly active user thing for me, it would, I would look like a terrible user, but like I'm like huge fan of the app and use it every time. Let me ask you, let me ask you about that, the, the transition. And like, obviously if you were growing free users for such a long time, you had to have pretty much, I mean, by definition, you gave away the core value prop, right? How did you make that? Like you talk about adding a community and stuff like this. Like, how did you think about from maybe from a product perspective, like what did you layer in to like create an additional incentive? You mentioned the Wikipedia model, which I guess would be like, you get nothing, right? You get good feelings, right? Did that work? Did you end up having, did you end up having to enhance features or remove, did you end up having to remove things that were in the free offering? Um, it looks like, I mean, like, again, this is a lot of stuff that's happened after I've left, but this was part of something we were thinking about, which was actually the content and putting the content behind the paywall and a lot of premium content, because another um, big driver for growth um, at Clue was building out content on the web, because an opportunity we saw, and like I'd done content marketing since I started there, but what I brought in somebody who had been a head of content who actually worked at The New Yorker, and what she saw as this opportunity is that there's no WebMD for female health. We have the space to take this market share. We can command all this SEO value, right? So we started building out this amazing content team, which was all of this like scientifically validated, analyzed by scientists and researchers content that was all on the web and it was all for free. And then it was like, wait a minute, this is driving SEO traffic, but are we converting it? And then like, okay, we should probably put that behind the paywall, right? So that ultimately is something that is, it is paywalled within within the product now. That's a big part of it. And then also I think it's it's the Wikipedia thing wasn't so much just like you're donating out of goodwill. It is you're contributing to science research, which again, mm. there is no huge body of female health research. It doesn't exist. For a long time, research was only done on men. And like if you're talking about, you know, menstruation and stuff that that doesn't really work so like that was another thing and we had a lot of research partnerships which was something we did highlight in the branding and in the product so those are some mm -hmm. of the things we tried 
So do we want to do we want to move 180 degrees to about the most different app you possibly well, can? Well, exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly what I did. So I did four years at Kuhn, and then I went into fishing, which was totally different. So <laughs> slightly, totally maybe. A, I that. mean, I don't know. Not to generalize, but probably a slightly different core demo. I would have yes, to guess. a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, give us give us the elevator pitch on on Fish Brain. Like I've I've followed the app as an early revenue cat customer, and actually mm -hmm. I grew up fishing as well. So I, I probably talk about Fish Brain in pitches and random stuff more than any other app just because well, I, thank it's, you. it's one of these these niches that you didn't know exist and you're sh is shockingly huge right yeah. and it's obvious yes. once you explain it so anyway i, I, I won't I exactly won't well so that's so that's the pitch so i don't need to explain it to you david but <laughs> what i usually say is did you know fishing is the world's most popular hobby uh, and that's in terms of money spent on it and so even if you don't fish yourself i guarantee there's someone in your life you know who is obsessed with fishing that's amazing. It's such it's a somebody. it's such an elitist blind spot, right? Like <laughs> the capital centers of the world. Like nobody in a fidei in SF is like, you know, bringing their fishing pole to work to hit the docks, right? It's like you know, it tends to be working class. It tends to be out of the city centers. I grew up in the rural states, and David as well. And like, yeah, it's ubiquitous. Like you know, yeah. everybody. Sure. I did it. My dad did it. I learned from my grandfather. Like everybody in my life. We used to, we used to, my whole, it would be a big social event too. Like my whole family, we would go to Canada. Like that would be our vacation. We would go fishing for a week in Canada, right? Like, uh, so yeah, that, that's one of my fascinations with the product and the, and the company mm -hmm. and the brand, uh, has always just been that, like how that you just can, these niches can be overlooked by traditional, especially traditional mm -hmm. capital and traditional like funding models and things like this. I, I, I love that your pitch included that it's the number one hobby by money spent. Cause that's actually something I wanted to dive into is that in a lot of these niches that are, that are underserved, people spend a ton of money. Like one of my favorite examples is, is uh, weightlifting. Uh, we had Jake Moore on the podcast. He has an app fitness AI. And, you know, $60 a session for a, a tr personal trainer at $60 a month or more for a, a gym membership. And then he's pitching a $60 a year app that makes all of those things like way better, potentially even replaces aspects of the personal trainer. So you're working in fishing, which people are spending tens of thousands of dollars on boats thousands of dollars on trips and guides and tackle and fishing poles. And like, it is an expensive hobby. So I'd love to, to hear kind of how Fishbrain thinks about their position in that chain. And even like the subscription price mm -hmm. in this hobby where so much money is spent. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is, it is quite interesting. And like something we tested, um, recently actually is, um, we use some positioning, right? It's like having a fish finder, but on your smartphone, because a fish finder costs like $300, right? Some of these are super expensive. And so we've tried to sort of tried to do that to again, justify like the cost of this. It's, I mean, I think we, we probably could be a little more aggressive on like pushing our pricing than we are. It's something we're, we're evaluating and working on. Cause I do think like, how do people think about fish brain in the context of all their other fishing equipment and tools and, and usage. And I think that's something that I think we could crack even better because I, um, I just heard a story from one of um, the guys on my team who's based in Florida and he was up hunting in like in Florida and he ran into an older, you know, guy um, who had a hunting app and the guy pulled it out and was like, oh, here's all I keep on my hunting spots. You know, it's so great. And, um, and my colleague was like, oh, well, you should get fish brains the same for fishing. And the guy said, well, I don't use apps. He's like, but you just, but you just, <laughs> and he just thinks of it as like a tool. He just didn't think of it as an app. It's like, it's a tool. It's a, it's a tool I use for hunting. So like, that's been it's really amazing. interesting. It's like, okay, like the entire way we communicate ourselves to this audience, which like, you know, 
makes me question, I think, sort of the underlying sort of like digital, not literacy, but sort of digital adoption of the average American consumer, right? You know, you think of the average like Amazon ordering, Netflix watching, smartphone having person. How Millennial much do you think about, Gen like, Wire, right? Like for, for us, it's actually a bit older, even actually, I would say, because our, our market skew is a bit older. Um, you know, how much do I market to them like as an app? Do they think of us as similar to like their Netflix subscription? Mm, do they think, think of us similar to like their other fishing gear? That's so, so I, so I, I don't actually have the answer to it, but it's something we're thinking about a lot. Is like where does our product fit in the sphere of tools they they use? Um, because we also think a lot about like Fishmore started as a social network, right? Like that was the thing. And it was, you know, when you're going back to thinking about who's, what's this niche that's out there, it started as the idea, like there were all these niches and Facebook and Instagram, these are super broad, but very shallow. And there's a need for people to go, you know, more narrow and deep with the stuff they care about. Right. And you see that now we were kind of early to it, but there's a lot of vertical social out there now. So vertical social was kind of how we started, but now we've realized where we're at now is like utility is really what, how you grow. And that's like top of the funnel, what people think about. They don't think, oh, I want a fishing social network. They think I want a tool to know where to go fishing and know what to use for fishing. So like, <laughs> yeah, you can see it, it's, it's like, are we a tool? Are we a social network? Are we an app? Are we actually a platform, which is where we're going towards? All of those things I think will impact our pricing strategy. I mean, calling it vertical social probably is, well, uh, vertical, any single category, because I think when I, I've used Fishbrain, I haven't gone fishing with it, but I've been, I've had a subscription. I've, like, it's been really interesting living in a rural area because I'm like <laughs> keeping track. And when the weather's nice, because people are catching, I'm getting notifications. It's really interesting. But to think of an app narrowly in those terms, I'm not even sure it's really appropriate more, right? Like, you, you, are you a utility? Are you social? Are you everything? You're just like the, the software touch point. You're the software companion piece for this part of somebody's life, right? And you live with them and you carry around your pocket and stuff like that. It's nice, but the hard thing is how do you market that, right? Like, it's got a lot of angles, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of the vertical social, I think, also comes back from just like fundraising. How do you position yourself? Like, so what are you sure. to an investor, you know? And, some, and sometimes, so it's a little bit interesting, like... I think actually, because I'm in charge of PR for us and how we talk about ourselves in PR to the different PR related audiences versus like consumer acquisition, sometimes like pretty far apart. Sure. Which I don't know if that's good or not, or if it just like is what it is. I mean, you're talking to the capital class or whoever your target is with the PR, right? Versus like the average fish brain user, which is probably closer to the average human being, right? It's a very different, yeah. like, it's a very different use, uh, very different messaging. I, I, your your, your um, anecdote with the, the hunter gentle person uh, reminded me of uh, when I, my dad, I tried to get my dad to download the NASCAR app. And it's a, he's a huge NASCAR fan. He watched every race, everything like that. Like, like every he's a huge fan and so i was like hey you should try the app it's really cool you can listen to radio on it you have all this telemetry it's a really great like sidecar experience for uh for nascar fans and he's like oh i don't pay for apps and i was like dude <laughs> i was like like do you know what my livelihood is right this like he knows but he's still like and my dad's my dad's in his 50s it's not like you know he's 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 literally like he i think he's in that that course that he has a netflix subscription he buys everything on amazon he's very like net literate but like when it comes to apps, there still is this like hesitation or like, I mean, it's, it's only 10 years old, right? Like he's, he's had the internet for 20 some years now. Uh, but the, but apps for a much shorter period of time and then much less so like something like Fishbrain that's so data enabled and engrossing and all, you know, something that's like a very different use case from, oh, I go on Amazon to order X. You're thinking about an app that's a companion that's like a utility and a social network and with you all the time. So yeah, I can't imagine what has, what has, 
what have you experienced that's worked well? Like, are there any like surprising angles and things like this that for fish brain specifically that you, that, that you were surprised resonated in terms of how we position it? Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes yeah. there's like an aha moment with, sorry, if I put you on the spot and there's not a good no, one, a single one. I mean, I have lots of like, things I can, I mean, I think it's something that, um, I think right now, so like this, uh, like, like everyone else in the app space, we're thinking about what we call distribution diversity, right? Like where do we get users from? Cause we have been quite reliant on, you know, paid marketing through Facebook yep. and Google, like everyone else. Cause like, why not? We can find all the anglers yep. there. Like it makes sense. Um, but we are looking more to how we can, you know, where can we can reach our target customer uh, in different places. And I think there's this quite interesting thing, like if these people aren't really thinking of like apps as something I use, but they have a need for this tool or this service, you know, are they even going to be on those digital platforms in the first place? So maybe there's this right. whole like section of the community who we haven't reached potentially yet. So we are looking a lot at like, uh, you know, what are those different places we can find people? So, so I guess like an example of that kind of was like, we did, um, a bunch of radio ads this past year, which was the first time mm -hmm. we've done that. And we did them on like ESPN and a lot of like, and like serious and like a lot of sports stuff and like very hard to measure the impact, right? Like we didn't have a good way to sort of measure how much it did, but anecdotally every single, uh, I'll be honest, every single man of a certain age that I've spoken to from the United States in the last six months, who is even remotely interested in like this industry has heard that that ad 50 times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, <laughs> there. how does that, uh, like how, what was that process? Like, was that a big transition for you as a, as a marketing organization to go from like IDFA, like just LTV performance buying? And was that like a whole new shift for, with the radio or had you been playing in brand advertising before or what was that like? Yeah, so we'd, we'd in um, early 2020, we did some of it and it was really helpful because we wanted to, because fishing is super seasonal, right? You know, you talked to mm -hmm. uh, Ron from All Trails, who I also spoke to after hearing your podcast because I thought it was so <laughs> great. And there, he's a seasonal business like us. Um, and so like we, where we're, our target market is mostly US. So that's like generally the fishing season is like April to October, more or less April to September. Um, with some variations, of course. So we, in theory, want to do most of our awareness push kind of in Q1. So we kind of get that awareness and then you turn it into more of the sort of conversion focused stuff after. So in 2020, mm -hmm. we were able to do that because we kind of had the budget in the plan and then COVID hit and then we totally benefited, which is a whole side story, but like, uh, come back to that. Um, but then, so like in 2021, so early this year, um, we do sort of our funding status. We didn't really have the budget to do that. And that was sort of like a bummer because then we saw like, but you know, we know it won't convert right now, but trust us, it'll work later. But it was like, oh, we have to show growth right now. So then that was some of the trade-off, but we were able to actually sort of like, okay, a little bit later in the season than we wanted to start doing that push on the radio and some billboards even too, actually. So that was so like, we had done awareness, but it was more purely digital awareness. And this was kind of the first time doing that level of like out of home. Um, so we're planning to do more of it because like, this is the other thing with fishing. Fishing is so outdoors, like so much of it, you know, you're going to a tackle shop to buy stuff. Like you're going out somewhere to go fishing, you know, like you could do a lot of it online, but at some point you got to go offline. And so I think that is a big opportunity for us to, to do more of that. I've heard a ton of, uh, uh, sorry, just on the radio thing. I've, I've, it seems like a ton of apps in this, the, at that scale, like the fish brains of the world and bigger and that, and that that level have been doing. I've heard so many consumer subscription app advertise advertisements on the radio, specifically XM and and other like uh, big buy radio ads. Uh, it's been really weird. <laughs> Especially, I've heard some other of our customers like I'm like in the I'm like out and about on the radio and I hear an ad and uh, yeah, I've been really curious about the like. 
I guess uh, you just don't know. You don't know what the measurement value is or whatever. It's it's sort of anecdotal, right? Which is it's tricky, and, we, but... and, and we've looked into like you know get, using some of the awareness budget to actually pay for like tracking service or an agency to like evaluate that because like money needs to come from somewhere. But I don't know. It's been a little bit unclear on like what will it measure. But it is something we need to do if we want to keep doing. We would like to find some way to measure it. With that uh, kind of awareness marketing, how do how do you think about internally? allocating team and budget and you know a lot of apps don't think about brand till to kind of later in the journey because they are so focused on just the performance marketing so you know as somebody who both at clue and now with fishbrain thinks about the brand more broadly you know how, how do you balance those things yeah we um it's it's more or less like 10 percent of the sort of performance acquisition budget we think about is going towards awareness activities ish um and then of course 10% of the budget is also going towards our commerce business, which we can also talk about. So it's interesting when you start to have to divide up that acquisition budget into a bunch of different chunks. Um, but that's that's something we sort of try to do with, again, like the, this money is an investment because if we get that awareness and branding stuff out now, it's going to make the customer acquisition cost for the performance stuff, you know, cheaper later. And you just have to trust us. And when I say you, I'm talking to like finance or the other stakeholders or the investors or whatever who just want to see like, I give Facebook a dollar and a user pops out. So um, I, I'm not really being fair to <laughs> finance or investor <laughs> people. I'm generalizing really broadly. Sure. Um, so it's a little bit of internal, I would say, like education and like sort of trust us. And like when we've shown it work, then you can do it more. But I mean, I think it's something, again, going on going in sort of the measurement and like now that there's been so much like with, you know, IDFA, everything. Now there's a lot more understanding of like, wow, we really need to do activities elsewhere and like maybe people are more open to doing awareness activities. Um, but again, of course, like the more we can then push it to some kind of measurable conversion metric, the better. So like, I don't know how we do, if, if we're doing an awareness yeah. thing that's really outdoors and out of home, but there's a QR code attached and we see how many times that get activated, like that's something. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think about the way we do a lot. We don't do a lot. We do some performance-based marketing, but like a lot of what we do is kind of just like, yeah, the podcast like how many downloads how many new users do we get from the podcast i have no idea right it's really hard to say <laughs> like we ask people who listen to the podcast but we get good anecdotals right like i think even that anecdote of saying like oh i talked to you know people in the u.s and they've heard of us right like that is not nothing right and like maybe that's not good enough to put on a slide <laughs> and like to pitch like some growth capital investment or something like this but uh but dang it almost should be because like i do think that i do i do think that this might be good right you were saying it's like now, now as 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 marketers, you have the a little bit now that the grip of oh, we have this perfectly analytical engine for user acquisition, which it never really was. <laughs> now it's kind of really obvious that it's not. Um, kind of gives you some freedom to do other things, which I think is good because, like, yeah, it gets the person who's not going to get targeted by a Facebook ad, right? Like they're just never yeah. on Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah, so, like there absolutely. are people not on Facebook. <laughs> as amazing it as it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And when you think about this, the brand marketing and awareness marketing, how do you, how do you think of aligning it with the performance marketing? Like, is there a certain kind of angle you pitch in in the radio ads that that kind of aligns with that the the performance marketing push? Mm -hmm. Like, like what do the ads say? I, I was just curious, kind of like tactically, yeah, you know, sure. How you think about that? Brand Absolutely. Marketing. I mean, so like I'm in charge of like brand for Fish Brain, right? And like you know, I have a journalism background, a communications background, so like I can. I probably shouldn't be doing super operational, but like I can do it and I often do because it's a startup, right? We're still a startup even if we're 125 people. Um, so actually when we did those ads, I worked with our 
um, someone from our performance team who was like, you know, doing the media buying and coordinating that stuff. And she came to me and said, okay, here's the script we're going to do with the radio. Can you know, read this together? And we like collaborated together. Like, what are the key talking points you want to hit? How do we make sure it stays on brand? So it really was a collaboration between, you know, me and brand and her and performance, you know, and, and part of when we were doing some more ideation too, that was also sort of a cross team thing of like maybe somebody in business development, who's really talking to people in the U S a lot and somebody from our social media team. And we sort of collaborate together on a concept. So it's, it's definitely not just like, within that respect, I think actually we did a pretty good job of not being too siloed. Um, but like on a general basis, that is a, I think that is a challenge of getting quite siloed between performance and brand. Yeah, you want to feel like it's a, a single... Uh, we've had this with Revenue Cat where we've had agencies doing performance ads for us and then like it feels like, oh, that's a different company. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just because like we're not there watching it every day and I'm not approving personally copy and even our internal people aren't necessarily like approving every single like thing they try. Um, and you, you can sometimes end up with 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 things out of whack. But I guess it's the benefit of building a marketing team in-house. Like you have more resources to control that. And I think it's important. And that was going to be my next question then is then how do you coordinate as kind of brand representative with the performance team? Because I've often heard that some of the ugliest ads, some of the like goofiest ads, some of the most like ugly worst ads can sometimes perform the best. Like how do you work with the performance team to kind of keep that brand messaging quality up, even when maybe the worst looking stuff is going to perform? How do you think about that side of things? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm fortunate that I have been able to build up in-house an incredible marketing design team. And the marketing design team works across sort of brand and then commerce and performance. So they kind of conserve all needs and like they are, uh, have very high quality standards, but are also very collaborative. So I think that helps a lot, right? Is that it's not like distinct design teams, right? I mean, the, the messaging is one thing, but the messaging, I think we're also pretty aligned on. Um, so it's having like very clear brand guidelines, you know, making sure everyone knows about them. And if people go off brand, they get shamed on Slack <laughs> and gone after, like we don't mess with the logo. <laughs> um, so I think, I mean like that, but that is something, and actually this is something when I think back about like how I scaled the marketing team, right? When I joined and I was like kind of the first marketing hire, one of the first and, you know, brought in my my lead performance person. And very, very quickly, we were like, we need designers. We need our own design team. We need designers to execute this stuff because the product designers are too busy and this isn't their area of expertise. So like that was kind of a really key hire, which was quite hard to find. Um, and ultimately what I ended up doing was uh, getting a couple people from an agency who then I immediately poached from the agency and they've been full-time for the last three years. So, um, but I think that's kind of an underrated aspect of building a performance team is having like really killer designers who understand what you're doing and are like owners and guardians of your brand. Yeah. I mean, David, you, you know, this David, David lives on the marketing team here and like so much of what you guys do is producing, you know, it comes down to a, a Photoshop file, right? Like there has to be some asset at the end of it. You know, sometimes it's audio, but often there's, there's, it's funny, Lisa, this is the conversation we're kind of having internally right now about design because yeah. we have product design and that we're trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we service brand design, marketing design, like all these other use cases, which are equally important and yeah, and different. So, um, but that's interesting that that was very, it seems like very early in building out your team was, was to focus on the design aspect. Yeah, it was really, I mean, I remember asking, coming in pretty early at Vishbrain and being like, Hey, product designers, I need you to make me some ads. And they like looked at me like <laughs> I was speaking for a language, like, what are you even talking about? So, I mean, not that they couldn't, I mean, of course they could, but yeah, it was like, you need people who really speak It's a big mental shift, right? Like in product design, you're you're doing UIs and you're doing a lot of UX work usually. And like, you're working with engineers and all this stuff. And it's like, what you wish to make a picture, just like a simple <laughs> picture, right? Like it's, it's a big mental shift. 
Yeah, but I mean, also just another thought on this, like actually as now, as the team's gotten bigger and we've scaled social media too, something we realized was key for us to unlock scaling our social media, like outside of Fishbrain, right? Fishbrain is itself social, but like we're very active on Instagram. It's a huge place where we do awareness acquisition. And um, I had one social media guy full time and he was like really getting burnt out because he was having to do all the creativity, all the copy, all of this stuff. And so adding both like, you know, an intern there, but also like a junior designer who's super focused on social media and creating content for that very explicit channel has made a huge impact. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in investing in design resources to support marketing needs because I think it actually is really worth, worth the investment. Yeah, I wanted to change gears here a little bit um, and talk about the Fishbrain marketplace. And and I, I think a lot of apps that are currently very focused on subscriptions are going to start looking for additional kind of revenue models. And it, it's really, and again, like Fishbrain has been so early to a lot of things, um, y'all are early to kind of sh making that shift. So uh, tell me about the Fishbrain marketplace and then I'm really curious, like how you think about that revenue internally, uh, you know, I mean, even like calculating an LTV when, when your free users might see ads and participate in the marketplace, do you push the subscription? You know, I mean, there's, there's so many, it just is more complicated, but also so many more opportunities as well on the monetization front. Yeah. So, right. So, so Fishbrain started out as, like I said, as a social network and started out and it was all free. Um, and then using the sort of information, the data from the social network of where people were catching fish, then we were able to add the sort of data layer of here's where to go to catch fish. That was what was behind the paywall primarily, right? So that was the next thing, subscription sort of evolution. But it was always the vision that, and as you guys know, if you go fishing, you use a lot of gear. It just made sense to be like, I can see where to go fishing. Okay. I should see what people are using to catch this. And then one more click, I could buy it so easy right um so but adding the sort of marketplace the commerce revenue stream was always part of the plan so that was something we did about three years ago um and yeah wow what a learning curve that has been because <laughs> um it's um it turns out that like that has not been the user's expectation when they come to Fishbrain. is like throwing a shop in there all of those 13 million registered users they don't all of a sudden just start buying just because you put a shop in their face which in retrospect makes sense but like it's, it's been much more of a challenge to sort of match that to our customer and find where it integrates both into the app experience as well as like how we market ourselves. Um, it's been a lot of fun and I've been working really intensely with commerce for the last about year or so um, because now it's it's really quite heavily, again, marketing and how do you communicate that and what is the value of it. But so, for example, like most of our commerce revenue comes from the web and not hmm. and much less from the app. Um, which is something like, you know, we believe really in social commerce and social commerce is the vision because again, like this should be the ideal version is like, I'm going through the app and I see what somebody caught and here's what all my friends are bought and I'm going to buy this because they bought it and we're all fishing together. Like it's, you can see the vision beautifully, but executing on that is, is, is quite challenging. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's, I mean, I, I think it's, it's been quite, um, it, it, it has pushed us in a lot of different ways. And I think a lot of like the interest we get from outside investment is in that potential of the marketplace um, and, you know, where the opportunity is for that to grow alongside the subscription revenue. In terms of how we think about LTV right now, we actually think about them separately. Um, and partially that's because like just with the data, it's been, we've had to do it manually. It's been too hard. We want to get to it closer, but also um, the actual, the LTV on the marketplace, like shoppers is generally kind of not so much higher than their, single purchase because we don't have as many repeat customers as we'd want. So that's sort of like, let's work on the repeat customers and that's going to, um, you know, support on the LTV. But I mean, if we do start look at like, uh, 
you know, the the LTV of, of our sort of subscriber customers, the pro subscribers on the Fishburne subscription who also buy, like it's higher. So like they're definitely, if you're a pro, you're also spending more money on the shop. So like, okay, there is something there that is, and, and we do bundle it a little bit. If you're pro, you get uh, free shipping above $10 and you get pro deals and that kind of thing. Um, so there's definitely like something there, but I think we really think we that's like the big next thing to crack. I mean, yeah. who's cracked social commerce anyway? I don't know that anyone really has. <laughs> And then on the free users, do they see ads separately from the marketplace? Or are you using the kind of uh, free non-subscriber users to, to more drive the marketplace shopping currently? No, so we don't think so. It's like if you, you will see ads for the marketplace no matter what you are, which was interesting because this right. came up during Black Friday. It was like they were pro users, like I pay pro. Why am I seeing <laughs> these ads for this shop? Um, so that's that's been something. Um, we're actually thinking about testing ads for our free users just generally, like more native ads or uh, rewarded ads and other kinds of thing. Because, yeah, I mean, there are free users who buy from the shop, but generally free, free users are not so inclined to buy anything. So you kind of sure. might as well make money off them from from ads. Yeah. So yeah. currently you don't have like a third party ad network in the app that are that are shown to those free users. I know we're testing that. We, we've been testing okay. that a little bit in the last few months. Yeah, we haven't rolled it out fully yet, but it's something we're, we're exploring now. Yeah, I think it highlights the, the challenges of any business like layering on second business models. Right. Or like bring there's there's complications in not in, in the unification, like as you're mentioning, like bringing two different LTVs together. But then I think there's also complications in business DNA, just like becoming a commerce company and understanding oh, yeah. how that is, <laughs> right? Oh, Versus yeah. like a content and a social media company. Um, and so I always, and I, but I think Fishbrain's at the right scale to be really be tackling that. I think I would caution like early stage founders to like really push that off, <laughs> like get, build your core value prop, build your free user base, like really nail that before you start to frankly experiment right like it's experimentation even at that scale yeah yeah and i i did a lot of like you know trying to benchmark like look at okay are there other apps who have been a social network that was a subscription that then layered commerce on top of it there are not very many who've done that which is like maybe because it's hard i mean um it's really interesting like i i i look or we look at vivino a lot if you know vivino the wine mm -hmm. app where you scan your wine and i've had a call with their uh, chief product officer before um, and it's quite similar, kind of interesting because it's sort of, a, it's a utility. It's a really cool thing. And they were like, cool, people are using this to look what wine to buy. We'll just make all the wines viable and it'll be great. And it was like, obviously not how it worked. They were, you know, he was very candid about that. Like that was not actually their point of purchase for wines within the app. So they had to really sort of build out that use case to that community. I mean, they're doing super well, so they have figured it out to a degree, but like, it's mm -hmm. another example of like, even when you think this is the user journey. They're buying something. I'm going to make it even easier for them to buy. Well, maybe, maybe that's not actually where they're buying it. So yeah, there's, there's something deep. I don't have a, I have to like take a walk on it to really like, uh, solidify my thoughts, but there is something about usability or like, just like when a user reaches for a tool and their expectations, right. And like, can two different, very different modes, even if they're in the same space, like wine and you know, wine tracking and wine, wine buying and, and, and fishing and equipment buying, even if they're very close, like there might be enough of a mental shift in how we like use versus consume or use versus expand that it makes it a little bit of what's the word, uh, mental friction or, or, uh, just like, 
like cognitive load, sorry, cognitive load there. I kind of making that switch, which yeah, I can, I can imagine. I mean, I think about it with revenue cat, like, okay, what, what do we layer on? Like, what can we add to revenue cat? That's like expansions to our business model. And every time I think about it, my head spins, I'm like, oh, okay, now I have to think about it. now. Now my users have to think like, oh, do I get the, this package and that package, even doing our pricing change this year, so intense because you're making so many assumptions about perceived value and then you're trying to model out how it's going to like work and like <laughs> it's very complicated right sometimes life is just simpler if you focus on your core uh, but you know that doesn't last forever right so yeah, yeah. and speaking of that being complicated how, how do you in marketing think about i mean you know are there different kind of personas that are the the free user versus the subscribe versus the you know, uh, somebody spending more on the marketplace and how do you think marketing and brand positioning of like, who are the users that are, that are, 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 our best target. And then how do you balance that against the community where you want engagement and activity, but that's not necessarily the same person who's going to pay. So like, you, you know, there's, it seems like there's a lot to balance in thinking through how to position and market this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we definitely we try to do, you know, pretty regular market research and really like segment those personas and like at the outset, maybe they all look the same. It's all like, you know, men 35 to 50. But like within that, right, it's it's, you know, in terms of where where they sort of learn about things. And like, obviously, on the on the web, commerce is quite driven by like Google shopping and sort of search optimization. So like, they're searching for deals, or maybe they're searching for specific product. And like, what does that mean? Yeah, versus somebody who's you no, know, I'm downloading the app, because I want to be part of that community. I mean, I think we are a big enough community. And if you do look at other social networks, there's space for different niches within the community, right? So like, we have lots of, you know, mm. groups within the community, and you can follow who you want to follow. So like, I do think that under the umbrella of fishing can find your find your people within it. Um, but then like, yeah, I mean, that whole <laughs> making that user journey customized, right from the ad, you see all the way through the funnel that like, even if you have a bunch of different needs, are we addressing it in each way like that, I think is quite and and then layer on top of that, right. And if you guys know fishing, fishing in Florida is very different from fishing yeah. in like, Seattle, where I'm from, like my dad is a my dad is a fly fisher yeah. who goes after trout, and it's very different from somebody you know in Ohio or somebody in. There's a big culture war here. If you were a person who learned to fish with only like a bobber and a and a like bait and just hanging bait, versus somebody <laughs> yeah. who actually casts fish. Like my dad taught me to cast fish, and I'd meet people who are like what kind of fishing pole is that? They've like never seen it, right? Uh, it was just like, yeah, amazing. I can imagine that that probably that's all across. Do you, on the marketing team, I imagine generally you talk to customers all the time, but like, do you have like a regular cadence of customer conversations and things like this on the marketing side to, to like understand your persona better? Because I imagine you guys are in the Nordics like mm. <laughs> in your marketing to Americans. Like it's gonna yeah. be an interesting cultural divide and everything. <laughs> so, I mean, there's probably, there's a reason that I am American working at like that I was hired <laughs> and being American was the only reason, but it definitely helped. Um, and that was actually yeah. true. Like clue Amer uh, the U S was a big market for us. So like, that's definitely, <laughs> that's sort of what I bring. Um, I mean, it's something that we address in, in a few ways. I think we're always pushing to be closer to our community, you know, talk to like, we have a big pool, pool of users. We can just DM them in the app. It's not that hard to find them. Um, so I push for that a lot with, with, with the team. Um, you know, we're also building up our hires in the U S which is one nice thing about expanding to be more remote, you know? So I've got like mm. the biz dev team there in the U S and we've like, we looked at, I mean, hiring people who are 
into phishing makes a huge difference, right? Like hiring people who are target customer, I mean, you shouldn't just hire your target customer. When it comes to marketing and business, it's actually pretty helpful, especially for us because we have that gap. Um, so we are looking to expand. I mean, I think that is a challenge of like not being located where our customer is. That's something we definitely have to overcome. Yeah, it's it's in B2B. It's like, and our customers don't, or our listeners probably don't care about this. In B2B, it's so much easier to get on customer calls because like you start very close. Like I'm a computer person, makes computer stuff. Usually my customers are computer people, make computer stuff. Like we can start with a pretty, <laughs> like a pretty common ground. I think when I was working in consumer, it's much harder. It's like, you know, these, it's just, a, it's a bigger gap to bridge, like to meet with somebody. So, but I think that's even more of a reason to do it. Right. Because like, you can only really presume to know so much about what your customers care about um, from a product perspective and then also a marketing perspective. It's yeah, just the I same. Yeah, I mean, something we do um, periodically is we bring, um, we will get like a, one of our amazing customers, you know, we'll get somebody who's like, you know, a guy from rural Mississippi who loves fish brain and he will, we'll bring him uh, virtually to our company, all hands, which of course we call all fins because you have to, right? Mm, so, right. Uh, yeah. and he will call in and just take questions from the team for 20 minutes. And that Whoa. in itself is like a really great when he's like super done and just like, you know, then you really get that right there. Cause it's easy for like one marketing person to do it. And then I take some notes and share, but like in front of the whole company, getting someone to do that, that that's, that's pretty powerful. I hope they get some good swag. That sounds intense. <laughs> we have a lot of, we have a lot of good swag. <laughs> do, do y'all go to like the big, like boat expos and fishing expos? Like, do y'all do some of those like in-person things and, and, and kind of meet your customers face to face in those kind of places? I would, we, we should do more of them. And obviously COVID's made it a little tricky, um, but we right. do, you know, go to the big, there's a big um, fishing, more industry, you know, fishing conference in, in Orlando every year. So we go to that and then, you know, I've speak, we speak in more like industry ones. I would say, so we've done it more on the sort of B2B actually level and less right. on the consumer. But that I think is, I mean, that's the thing. Like what I, when I look at sort of, again, going to distribution diversity and thinking about how do we reach people? I would love to like host our own sort of low key fishing tournaments all over the United States that are run by like our community, yeah. you know, more kind of like the Yelp model almost to real mm -hmm. do throwback. I don't know if people use Yelp as an example anymore, but like what they used to do. Um, <laughs> I think that's what we could definitely do more of. Do you, do you all sponsor fishing tournaments and, and get involved in, in those kind of things? Oh, we've done it a bit and it's something, again, we're going to do more this year in the next year, right? It's yeah. like, there's like sponsored the budget for that. There's a, this is a great thing okay, about the death of IDFA. Like, yeah. <laughs> like suddenly <laughs> there's so much more creativity and options and like growing an app no longer is this just like Facebook mark, this like Facebook mm -hmm. ad spend, like spreadsheet driven slog. Like now you can actually be creative. You can go into places that's going to put you in touch with your users. That's one of the reasons I've loved moving into B2B from B2C is like, you just get so much more customer FaceTime. You can do things. We can go to events. Like we can do podcasts. Like we can do stuff that's like more human and it's a little more and along with the performance stuff as well. Um, but, but yeah, fish brain, it just feels like, yeah, with all the, all the people that use it, all of the events and like grassroots stuff that happens around the world, like I can just imagine it's, there's, there's probably more opportunities than you have time to like attack. A lot of them were trying to, I mean, I'll give you one more example, which I, which I think is like another one. We'll see how it pays off. But for example, as you know, in the U S if you want to go fishing, you need a fishing license usually. Right. 
and who sells the fishing licenses all the different states and so originally we were like oh can we sell fishing licenses no because like that's takes five-year cycles and it's like crazy old software and like no no way okay but how do we plug into that sort of user journey of buying a fishing license by working with those licensed providers so that's like another sort of b2b partnership we're looking to you can buy a license at walmart yeah like, why not right? exactly and so it's like you know maybe we're not going to sell license maybe we're the place where you store your license you know we have a license wallet within start, the app yeah. Right. But you can imagine, you can see a world where states liberalize and like they start letting like new, you know, like I, it's not crazy, right? It's not crazy. And that's why, that's why it's so exciting to be building in this time. I don't know, in this time of being able to build software for niches that are bigger than you think have been underserved by software. And now software companies are coming in and this like mobile first angle to like meet these use cases. I just love it. Anyway, I will continue to talk about Fishbrain <laughs> as like my favorite example of a subscription driven app <laughs> for the rest of time because it blew my mind when I discovered it when we started working with y'all and like uh it's still to to this day it's like my favorite example to use. So. Well, thank you. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Uh we're going to link to uh, of course your LinkedIn and Twitter and um Fishbrain on Instagram and whatnot. But is there anything else you want to share your hiring or, or anything else you want to pitch as we wrap up? Unfortunately, we're not hiring a ton right now, but um if you know someone who fishes or who's into fishing, please tell them about Fishbrain because it's not you, but I guarantee it's someone in your life who does. So please tell them. Awesome. Well, it's so great chatting with you, Lisa, and I see your daughter is smoking <laughs> yeah, the lights sorry. on. The <laughs> <laughs> we went over. It's uh, it's our our bad. It's all, good. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.